Continuation of Chapter 2, The Early Life of Christ John the Baptist The awful silence of thirty years was interrupted only by the brief scene in the temple. The time was now coming to move from privacy to publicity. Because the event was to be world-shaking, Luke connects the appearance of the herald of our Lord, John the Baptist, with the reign of the tyrant Tiberius, the ruler of Rome. Pliny, who was later on to write as a Roman historian about Christ, was now a child of four. Vespasian, who later on would conquer Jerusalem with his son Titus, was nineteen. One of the very important marriages in Rome at that time was that of the daughter of Germanicus, who nine years later was to give birth to the great persecutor of Christ's followers, Nero. In the midst of this relative Roman peace, the word of God came upon John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Luke 3, 2. John was living in solitude in the desert, clothed in camel's hair, with a leather girdle about his loins. His food consisted of locusts and wild honey. His costume was probably meant to resemble that of Elijah, in whose spirit John was to go before Christ. Since he preached mortification, he practiced it also. If he was to prepare for Christ, he must also evoke a penitent consciousness of sin. John was a severe ascetic, moved by a deep conviction of sin in the world. The heart of his message to soldiers, public officials, farmers, and anyone else who would listen was, Repent. The first note of warning in the New Testament tells all men to change. The Sadducees must lay aside their worldliness, the Pharisees their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. All who come to Christ must repent. With the country under a Roman yoke, it would have been a more certain route to popularity for John to promise that the one who was to come, the one whom he announced, would be a political liberator. That would have been the way of men. But instead of a call to arms, John gave a call to reparation for sin. And those who claim descent from Abraham must not glory in it, because if God willed, he could raise up children of Abraham from the very stones. Who was it that taught you, brood of vipers, to flee from the vengeance that draws near? Come then, yield the acceptable fruit of repentance. Do not think to say, We have Abraham for our father. I tell you, God has power to raise up children to Abraham out of these very stones. Luke 3, 7. Many centuries before, Isaiah had foretold that the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. Behold, I am sending before thy face that angel of mine who is to prepare thy way before thee. There is a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, straighten out his paths. About three hundred years after Isaiah, the prophet Malachi prophesied that the herald Isaiah had promised he would come in the spirit of Elijah. I will send Elijah to be your prophet. Malachi 4, 5. Now, after centuries had whirled away into space, there appeared in the wilderness this great man leading the same kind of life as Elijah. In all countries, where the head of a government wishes to visit another government, he sends messengers before his face. So John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of Christ, to announce the conditions of his reign and government. John, despite the prophecies that were made about him, disclaimed that he was the Messiah, and said that he was only the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John 1.23 Even before he met the Messiah, who was his own cousin, he announced the superiority of Christ. One is to come after me who is mightier than I, so that I am not worthy to bend down and untie the strap of his shoes. Mark 1, 7. John considered himself unworthy to untie the shoes of our Lord, but our Lord would surpass him in humility as he would wash the feet of the apostles. The greatness of John consisted in the fact that to him was given the privilege of running before the chariot of the king and saying, Christ has come. John used symbols as well as words. The chief symbol of the washing away of sin was a cleansing by water. John had been baptizing in the Jordan as a token of repentance, but he knew that his baptism did not regenerate or quicken the dead soul. That is why he made a contrast between his baptism and the baptism that later on Christ himself would confer. Speaking of the latter, he said, He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
Matthew 3.12 The day on which John and Jesus met in the Jordan, there awakened in John the deepest and most reverent humility. John felt the need of a Redeemer, but when our Lord asked him to baptize him, John was reluctant to do so. John immediately recognized the incongruity of submitting our Lord to a rite which professed repentance and promised cleansing. It is I, he said, that ought to be baptized by thee, and dost thou come to me instead? Matthew 3.14 How could he baptize one who had no sin? His refusal to baptize Jesus was a recognition of his sinlessness. But Jesus answered, Let it be so for the present. It is well that we should thus fulfill all due observance. Matthew 3.15 The object of his baptism was the same as the object of his birth, namely to identify himself with sinful humanity. Had not Isaiah foretold that he would be numbered with the transgressors? In effect, our Lord was saying, Suffer this to be done. It does not seem fitting to you, but in reality it is in complete harmony with the purpose of my coming. Christ was not being this as a private person, but as a representative of sinful humanity, though himself without sin. Every Israelite who came to John made a confession of his sins. It is evident that our blessed Lord did not make any such confession, and John himself admitted that he had no need of it. He had no sin to repent of and no sin to be washed away, but he was identifying himself with sinners all the same. When he went down into the river Jordan to be baptized, he made himself one with sinners. The innocent can share the burdens of the guilty. If a husband is guilty of a crime, it is pointless to tell his wife not to worry about it, or that it is no concern of hers. It is equally absurd to say that our Lord should not have been baptized because he had no personal guilt. If he was to be identified with humanity, so much so as to call himself the Son of Man, then he had to share the guilt of humanity. And this was the meaning of the baptism by John. Many years before, he had said that he must be about his father's business. Now he was revealing what his father's business was, the salvation of mankind. He was expressing his relationship to his people, on whose behalf he had been sent. In the temple at the age of twelve, it had been his origin that he emphasized. Now in the Jordan, it was the nature of his mission. In the temple he had spoken of his divine mandate. Under the cleansing hands of John, he made clear his oneness with humanity. Later on, our blessed Lord would say, The law and the prophets lasted until John's time. Luke 16, 16. He meant that long centuries had borne faithful witness to the coming of the Messiah, but now a new page was turned, a new chapter written. From now on he was to be merged with the sinful population. He was committed henceforth to live among and minister unto the victims of sin, to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and to be accused of sin though he knew no sin. As in his infancy he was circumcised as if his nature were sinful, so now he was baptized, although he had no need of purification. There were three rites in the Old Testament which were baptisms of sorts. First was a baptism of water. Moses brought Aaron and his son to the doors of the tabernacle and washed them with water. This was followed by a baptism of oil, when Moses poured oil upon Aaron's head in order to sanctify him. The final baptism was one of blood. Moses took the blood of the ram of consecration and put it upon Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. This ritual implied a gradual consecration. These baptisms would have their counterpart in the Jordan, the Transfiguration, and Calvary. The baptism of the Jordan was a prelude to the baptism of which he would later speak, the baptism of his passion. Twice afterward did he refer to his baptism. The first time was when James and John asked him if they could sit on either side of him in his kingdom. In answer, he asked them if they were ready to be baptized with the baptism which he was going to receive. Thus his baptism of water looked forward to his baptism of blood. The Jordan flowed into the red rivers of Calvary. The second time he referred to his baptism was when he said to his apostles, There is a baptism I must be baptized with and how impatient am I for its accomplishment. Luke 12:50. In the waters of the Jordan he was identified with sinners. In the baptism of his death, he would bear the full burden of their guilt. 
In the Old Testament, the psalmist speaks of entering into deep water as a symbol of suffering, which is manifestly the same imagery. There was a fitness in describing agony and death as a kind of baptism. The cross must have been looming up in his thoughts now with increasing vividness. It was no afterthought in his mind. He was temporarily immersed in the waters of the Jordan, only to emerge again. So would he be immersed by the death on the cross and the burial in the tomb, only to emerge triumphantly in the resurrection. He had proclaimed his mission from the Father at the age of twelve. Now he was preparing himself for oblation. So Jesus was baptized, and as he came straight up out of the water, suddenly heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting upon him. And with that a voice came from heaven which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.16 The sacred humanity of Christ was the connecting link between heaven and earth. The voice from heaven which declared him to be the beloved Son of the Eternal Father was not announcing a new fact or a new sonship of our blessed Lord. It was merely making a solemn declaration of that sonship which had existed from all eternity, but which was now beginning to manifest itself publicly as mediator between God and man. The Father's good pleasure, in the original Greek, is recorded in the Aorus tense, to denote the eternal act of loving contemplation with which the Father regards the Son. The Christ who came out of the water, as the earth had come out of the water at creation and after the flood, as Moses and his people had come out of the waters of the Red Sea, was now glorified by the Holy Spirit appearing in the form of a dove. The Spirit of God never appears in the figure of a dove anywhere save here. The book of Leviticus mentions offerings which were made according to the economic and social position of the giver. A man who could afford it would bring a bullock, and a poorer man would offer a lamb. But the poorest of all had the privilege of bringing doves. When the mother of our Lord brought him to the temple, her offering was a dove. The dove was the symbol of gentleness and peacefulness, but above all it was the type of sacrifice possible to the lowliest people. Whenever a Hebrew thought of a lamb or a dove, he immediately thought of a sacrifice for sin. Therefore the Spirit descending upon our Lord was for them a symbol of submission to sacrifice. Christ had already united himself symbolically with man in baptism in anticipation of his submergence into the waters of suffering. But now he was also crowned, dedicated, and consecrated to that sacrifice through the coming of the Spirit. The waters of the Jordan united him with men. The Spirit crowned him and dedicated him to sacrifice, and the voice attested that his sacrifice would be pleasing to the Eternal Father. The seeds of the doctrine of the Trinity which were planted in the Old Testament began here to unfold. They would become clearer as time went on. The Father, the Creator the Son, the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit, the Sanctifier. The very words the Father spoke here, Thou art my Son, had been prophetically addressed to the Messiah a thousand years before in the second psalm. Thou art my Son, I have begotten thee this day. Psalm 2, 7. Our blessed Lord would tell Nicodemus later on, Believe me, no man can enter into the kingdom of God unless birth come to him from water and from the Holy Spirit. John 3, 5. The baptism in the Jordan closed our Lord's private life and began his public ministry. He had gone down into the water known to most men only as the Son of Mary. He came out ready to reveal himself as what he had been from all eternity, the Son of God. He was the Son of God in the likeness of man in all things save sin. The Spirit was anointing him not just for teaching, but for redeeming. <laughs>